So the handout that you should have in front of you should say the King's team. If you do not have that, raise your hand. Does anyone need a handout? The King's team. I mentioned this on the uh, the first Sunday of this month that the uh, three remaining sermons that I'd be preaching were training for what we have planned in the future. And I believe that they will also impact, based on our reception of them, that they will also uh, impact uh, our ability to have impact for Christ, for our King, in the coming years. And so uh, this subject is related to that, and uh, I want you to be thinking about it in that way as we go through it here uh, today, as we talk about this subject of team, I want you to be thinking about this as necessary to us as a church, as a team, uh, having impact for our King. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that we can again come to your house, the house of your Son, who is with us here also today, I pray that what he hears and sees, even in our hearts right now, would be pleasing. That he would see people who are ready to learn, whose hearts are open to submit to what it is that they learn, and to apply these things to their lives and to make the changes necessary to serve him and to serve you. Make it so, we pray, in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you would, direct your eyes to the top of uh, that handout there, your notes, and follow along as I read. No one gets to heaven by themselves. No one gets to heaven by themselves. Why? Because Christianity is a team sport. We need to be on the King's team The church. The church. More than that, we need to be doing our part to see that the king's team is a success. Here then is what you need to know about the king's team and your place on it. Number one, every church member is important to the team's success. Every church member is important to the team's success. Success. First Peter chapter one, verses eighteen and nineteen. <clears throat> uh, say some things that you've probably read before, or you've read these particular verses before, but maybe never have thought about it the way that we're going to talk about it here in just a couple of seconds. Follow along first as I read those verses, knowing then that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You were ransomed. You were purchased. Literally is uh, what that term is referring to. You were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. You being those in the church, Christians, you were purchased 
with the precious blood in Christ. That means king. You were purchased with the precious blood of our king. The king purchased you for the team at the incredibly high price of his blood. That's what we're being told here by Peter. Let me just say it again. The king purchased you for the team at the incredibly high price of his own blood. Well, what does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means this. Jesus believes you are important to the team's success. An example from recent sporting news, the Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns recently uh, acquired Deshaun Watson, who's uh, a free agent or was a free agent, for a guaranteed total, I believe this is over five years, of $230 million. That's the contract that they're giving to him. That's guaranteed money. It's the most guaranteed money in NFL history. What does that tell us that the Cleveland Browns believe about Deshaun Watson? To give him that kind of money. The most guaranteed money in NFL history. Well, again, at the very least, it tells us that the Browns believe Watson is important to their success, does it not? Jesus would not have given his precious blood for someone he didn't believe could have a major impact for his team. Hence why Peter says what he does in the verses just prior to these verses. In verse 13, he says this, Prepare your minds for action. Literally, get ready to make an impact for the team. Gird up your minds. Get ready. Get ready again to make an impact for the team that you were purchased at a high price to play for. Get ready to show you are worth the price that was paid versus being a bust. This happens in the NFL at times. Players are purchased at a high price and they prove not to be worthy of the price that was paid for them. Peter is telling us that we need to prepare for action. We need to be playing at the level that we were purchased. You say, well, I I don't know that I believe that. Well, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, those who are a bus, those who don't play at that level, will be considered apostate and go to hell. What am I talking about? Well, in that text it says, these types of people have profaned the blood. And uh, literally, uh, what it's talking about there, and a good example of this is uh, uh, its parallel in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, this phrase, profane, uh, that they have profaned the blood. It means to waste the price that was paid, uh, to be made useless. And that's how it's translated in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, this same uh, term that is translated in Hebrews 10, 29. So that is, in other words, exactly uh, what is being said. For those who go to hell, those who were purchased, 
by Christ's precious blood at that incredibly high price, but do not show themselves worthy of that price. Those who have profaned the price by profaning the blood, the price, who have wasted what was paid for them, will be declared apostate. This is why in Luke chapter 20, verse 35, Jesus says, those who are worthy to attain to the resurrection. Worthy. There is something that is expected of us. It's interesting, that term uh, grace, there's a book uh, by a, uh, an individual or a man by the name of Paul Barclay, a rather thick book, called Paul and the Gift, and uh, in that particular book he, he speaks to the issue of grace, that term that we see uh, throughout the New Testament, that you have been saved by grace, and how that that particular term, grace, uh, in uh, its ancient context referred to a gift uh, that was expected to be reciprocated back to the one who gave it. And uh, one of the things that he talks about as support for this is the gift that a king would give to somebody. And we know this to be true even today, uh, that if a king in some other country gives you a gift, uh, you are expected to reciprocate on that. In other words, it's not free or with no strings attached. It's actually just the opposite. And that's how it was in ancient times. And that's how this term grace is to be understood when we read it in our Bibles. The gift, the high price that was given to purchase us, uh, God expects, our king expects that to be reciprocated in worthy play. We are to make an impact for our team. We are to make an impact for our king. Every church member is important to that, to the team's success. We were purchased at that high price so that we could make an impact, so that we could guarantee, as we're going to see, our team's success. Number two, when King Jesus purchased the church, he promised to build a winning team. When King Jesus purchased the church, he promised to build a winning team. At Matthew 16, verse 18. Consider uh, Jesus' words here in relation to this particular subject, team. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Church being the king's team, being Jesus' team. I will build my team. I will build my team, and notice, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, it will be a winning team. Looking again to the notes, the team Jesus has assembled cannot be defeated by the opposing team. The opposing team, the gates of hell. A reference or referring to rather Satan and his evil forces, which includes then uh, the evil forces of this world under his control. Jesus says they cannot prevail against us. Why? 
Well, because of what he tells us in verse 19, which is this. Because he, Jesus, has empowered us, has empowered us, you and me, the members who collectively make up the church or the king's team, with the keys to heaven's nuclear weapons. Again, verse 19 is where we get that from. I will build my church, I will build my team, and the gates of hell, the opposition, the opposing team, shall not prevail against it. It will be a winning team. Here's why. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the heavenly nukes, in this way. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed In heaven, that word bind, the weapon of eternal damnation. The term loose referring to the weapon of eternal salvation. We have the keys to both the church, the king's team. What does Satan or the world possess that can thwart or stand against those weapons or powers? Nothing. Nothing. What that means for us as it relates to success or victory as this team, this winning team that Christ has purchased and promises to build, what that means only the church can beat the church. Only the church can beat the church. In other words, we beat ourselves. That's the only way we can lose, and how we do that is by refusing or failing to do what it takes to win. What it takes to win. Which brings us then to that subject. What does it take to win? We are the winning team. We have everything that we need to be successful, to win. But what does that require Well, number three, it requires this. It requires that the church function as a team and fight for their king. Function as a team and fight for their king. Steve Jobs, the uh, late founder of Apple, said this, and I quote, Great things are never done by one person. Great things are never done by one person. They're done by a team, a team of people. And in one respect, that's true even as it relates to Jesus. Great things are never done by one person. They're instead done by a team. Beloved, Jesus needed a team Even Jesus needed his team. Even Jesus needs his church to complete his mission on earth. The kingdom our team established, we have been left to grow and defend. This is what Jesus is uh, is speaking to or talking about in John 14 when Uh, He says uh, that we will do greater works than even he has done. John 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, 
and greater works than these will he do. Greater works. What's he referring to? What kind of works? Well, I think the answer comes by considering texts like Matthew 28, Jesus' great commission address just before he ascends back to heaven. Matthew 28. And notice, by the way, the the piece I left off there that really connects uh, what we're going to uh, or connects this passage, John 14, 12, to what we're going to is uh, greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Matthew 28, just before Jesus goes back to the Father. In verse 18, he says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why does he tack on that piece there, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? Have you ever thought about that? Why doesn't Jesus just say, hey, I'm going back to the Father. Uh, Here's what I've given you to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Why this first piece about all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? That clearly has something to do with what he tells us there in the actual commission portion, verses 19 and 20. Well, I think the answer is this. If you were to go back to the previous chapter, Matthew 27, verse 11, verse 29, verse 37, over and over you have this phrase, King of the Jews. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? It's the sign that is uh, put over uh, Jesus' head on the cross, king of the Jews. It's uh, what the soldiers mock him as, king of the Jews. Jesus, by his death, by his sacrifice, became then more, and we're going to see this here at the end of our time, But he became more than just the king of the Jews. He was upgraded to king of kings or king of everyone. And now because of that authority, he could say to his disciples, you will do greater works than me. Your uh, your, uh, ability to expand the kingdom, greater meaning uh, more expansive work, will be not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. To the whole world. Looking again to the notes, because of Jesus' upgrade to King of Kings or King of Everyone, versus simply King of the Jews, the church would do the greater or more expansive work of advancing the kingdom beyond the borders of Israel. However, for the church to finish what Jesus started requires we function as the team and fight for our king. Again, this is what winning requires. And again, Jesus is counting on his church. Jesus needs his team to finish the work. What it means then to function as a team. What it means to function as a team. Well, Here's the first thing it means. We stop acting like fans and we get in the game. We stop acting like fans and we get in the game. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 begins with 
Jesus sending out the 70, I believe it is 70 versus uh, what it says in here in the ESV. You do see a footnote, or those of you who have a footnote, uh, I believe it is 70 versus 72. Nonetheless, Jesus sends out a bunch of people. Notice there, verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. So he sends them first to the places he's going to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice, first of all, again, Jesus needed the team to get the win. Hence the reason he sends them out first. Jesus needed his team. He needs players who will get in the game and help out. Again, the term that is used here twice, laborers. Pray for laborers, Jesus says. I need, Jesus says, laborers. The king needs laborers, not spectators, not fans. And uh, really, those two things are uh, at least functionally one and the same, right? That's what a fan does. They, uh, they just, uh, they're just a spectator. They're just watching. They're not actually in the game. They're not contributing to the play on the field, to the win. Jesus doesn't say, pray Pray therefore earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out fans, spectators, people sitting on the sidelines going, Yay! Go, Jesus! Laborers, players who will, in other words, get in the game. As stated in the previous point, we are all important to the team's success. But that means getting in the game, getting involved with what our team is currently learning or doing. Even the best player cannot benefit the team if all they do is sit on the sidelines or refuse to learn the plays. Wouldn't you agree? So let me ask you this question. How many of you, I told you this last week, part of the training, you need to learn, you need to be able to persuasively convince somebody else that Jesus is coming back within the next 25 years. How many of you, just raise your hand, have done that? You functioning as a team here, guys? Have you learned the plays? Have we learned the plays? Are we concerned about learning the plays? Or are we just going to sit on the sidelines and be spectators and go, Yay, pastor! Have we learned the plays? Let me, let me just ask you another one. Maybe you say, well, I'm a week or so behind on that one, uh, coach. Uh, what about the marriage covenant gospel? How many of you could present and defend it from the scriptures? How many? How do you expect to make a play if you don't learn the plays and get in the game? Oh, I know. You, you'll call the only player on the team Pastor. Hey, pastor, I got somebody at my house that needs to talk to you. Can you come over right now? I never learned the plays. I heard them. I heard you talk about them. I know you know them. Can you come over? Like Jesus, pastor needs the team to get the win. Makes sense, doesn't it? So to function as a team, we need to stop acting like fans and get in the game. 
You need to get in the game. We need to get in the game together to play as a team. That's what it means to be a team. Number two, it means this. We are fully committed to the team and our thinking, our loyalty, and gospel strategy decided by the team's leaders, the team's coaches. We are fully committed to the team and our thinking, our loyalty, and gospel strategy decided by the team's leaders and coaches. Where am I getting this from? Well, uh, Philippians chapter 2. We talked about this before. Uh, so this text should also be uh, familiar to you. Now we're just taking it from the perspective of team. But notice uh, what Paul says here in the first two verses. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, in the king, any encouragement in your king, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, Paul, uh, Paul, uh, yes, Paul is, is saying, if you've gained anything from being joined to your king, if there's anything that you are thankful for that he's done for you, do this, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Those first three there, same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. What is he talking about there? He's talking about full commitment in our thinking same mind. Our loyalty, same love. Love equals loyalty. Fully committed in our thinking and loyalty to the team. And uh, where I'm getting the full from is, again, being in full accord. Being in full accord means to be fully committed. Fully committed where? Again, in our thinking, same mind. And in our loyalty, same love. Take that final phrase, and of one mind. What is he talking about there? Well, again, the full accord would apply to that as well. That's why it's stuck there in the middle, that uh, prepositional phrase, being in full accord, and of one mind, fully committed to the strategy. This is the idea of one mind. All on the same page, running in the same direction. Fully committed to the strategy called by the team's leaders, or coaches, and this applied to Paul, or applies also to Paul. He's speaking to this very thing as this particular team's uh, coach. You go back to uh, chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Paul praises them, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And uh, you, uh, you pull that idea through to uh, verses 25 through 27, convinced of this, your partnership. One mind, you're with me in this. I gave you the strategy and now I want you to continue in this. I, notice what he says. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in, in King Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of the King. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are still standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Strategy. There it is again. One mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What's Paul talking about? Well, he's saying, I'm coming back as the coach. Just before that, he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And 
Find to live on the flesh just means fruitful labor for me. I'm hard-pressed, verse 23, however. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, but it's more necessary on your account again, convinced of this. I will remain and continue. I'm coming back as the coach. Until then, stay committed to the gospel strategy I gave you before. Again, going back to that partnership in the gospel with me. Continue in that one mind, striving side by side. By the way, strategies change. They change all the time. Just as circumstances change, so the strategies change, which means we need to change and fully commit to the new strategy. Every time there is a new strategy decided by our coaches versus uh, viewing it as a flaw or a failure. One such example of this comes from uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Paul here, uh, changing up the strategy in relation to the Corinthian church or his strategy with them. Starting in verse 12, he says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely toward you. Notice that. Our boast, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. We had a good conscience in the, in the way that we have been behaving as your coaches towards you, supremely so, he says, toward you, even though that included changing things up. What am I talking about? Well, if you continue to read on, verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and Have you sent me on my way to Judea? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? That was my original strategy. Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been has not been yes and no. We weren't vacillating when we made that original strategy. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to you or coming again to Corinth. It's Paul saying there. The circumstances changed and we changed the strategy. The original strategy was we were were coming to you and uh, we decided now, you know what, that's not a good strategy. And Paul says yet again, go back up to verse 12. We have a good conscience about this. The way that we've handled you, the way that we've coached you, we have done so supremely so. Things change and... uh, The team is expected to get behind the coaches in that when things change. Some of you have been watching the uh, In the Man or the the Man in the Arena series. And uh, in episode one of that uh, that particular series, the uh, former linebacker for the uh, New England Patriots, Willie McGinnis, comments on how the team expected Drew Bledsoe to be declared the starter for Super Bowl thirty-six. And that because he was the quarterback that had already been to a Super Bowl. He was experienced uh, versus Tom Brady, who was the inexperienced young quarterback. They fully expected Drew to come back. He was healthy again. 
And yet Coach Belichick changed the strategy and decided instead to go with Tom Brady. And what's really revealing about that in this particular series, I would highly recommend for the principles that are established in this particular series. What did the team do? Here's what Willie McGinnis says. He says they fully committed themselves to the coach's decision and their new quarterback. Fully committed. Even though they expected it to go a completely different direction, that was what they believed the strategy was going into the Super Bowl. The moment Belichick changed that, they fully committed to the new plan and to their new quarterback. As it related to Drew himself, though hugely disappointed with Belichick's decision, Drew Bledsoe also fully supported his coach his team and Tom Brady, who went on to beat the greatest show on turf. They're speaking about the 2001 Rams with uh, Kurt Warner and guys like Marshall Falk and Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt. It's a dominant team that had been dominant for several years, I think three years. And uh, they go on to beat them with this inexperienced quarterback with Tom Brady. I get the point not to miss is the commitment of the team to the team and to their coaches even when that included change in the strategy. Change. Jeff Bezos, some of you know who that is. Some of you have worked for Jeff Bezos. Here's his view on change or change of strategy for those of you who don't like change. Here's what he said, and I quote, people who are right a lot, listen a lot, and they change their mind a lot. They change their mind a lot. Did you get that? Unfortunately and embarrassingly, the world is often more committed to their coaches and teams than the churches to theirs. That is embarrassing. It's unfortunate and it's embarrassing. The perfect example of this is Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Jesus picks Judas to be one of the 12, one of his superstars on the team. Not just part of the team, but one of his superstars. And Judas betrays him. Why does he betray him? Well, according to what we read in Mark chapter 14, comparing it with what we read in John 12, uh, it's because he didn't like the strategy of his coach. Uh, Jesus takes this uh, vial of very, or rather this woman takes this vial of very expensive perfume and uh, uh, she anoints Jesus with it. And some of the disciples were told get uh, upset about that. One of those being Judas. Well, the others didn't take action after hearing Jesus' correction on what they were thinking, but Judas did. What did Judas do? Because of that event, Judas went out and betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders. Did he commit to the team? Did he commit to the change in his coach's strategy? No. No. He didn't like the strategy. So he betrayed his team, and he betrayed his coach. Consider this is why we're warned in places like Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 to strive for peace without which no one will see the Lord. What does it mean to strive for peace? Unity. Peace being within the team. Strive for peace. That's what the author is speaking to. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Again, a text that you should be familiar with. There, Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. That's the team. 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, the team of God, which was obtained with his own blood. Why? Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They will act as though, here's what he's getting at, they will act as though they are or should be the captains of the team and will attempt to recruit people to their team or their strategy. That's what Paul's saying here. Pay careful attention for that kind of dissension. People who are not committed to the team and to the strategy that has been uh, uh, established or decided upon by the, the coaches of the team. This is why we have passages like Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, which say, take note of those who cause dissension. Have their own opinion different than that of their coaches. Romans, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, a text worth uh, turning to. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Just prior to that, he says this in verses 13 through 15, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, through loyalty, serve one another. No individuals, right? Team. Don't think of that freedom that you've been given now as uh, means you're an individual, you're outside the team. Don't use it that way, he says. Instead, through loyalty, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love, you shall be loyal to your neighbor as to yourself. But if you, de- if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. These verses combined give to us the recipe for a church that never gets a win for the king. A recipe for a church that never gets a win for their king. Three things he mentions here as part of this recipe. The first is this. Everybody thinks they know better than everybody else, including their coaches. They are conceited. That's the term he uses, right? Again, let us not become conceited, verse 26. Two, everybody has a chip on their shoulder so they can't get along with their teammates, provoking one another. Let us not become conceited or provoking one another. Again, you got a chip on your shoulder. You never can get along. Always fighting. There's always something. Again, the recipe for a church that never, never gets a win. Number three, everybody is jealous of everybody. And so they quit all the time. Why do I say that? Well, that's because that's, that's the number one reason people quit. People quit because they're jealous of other people. There's that final piece in verse 26, envying one another, being jealous of one another. The recipe, again, for a church that never gets a win for their king, these three things. In other words, they are a team that bites, devours, and consumes one another rather than commits to one another in their thinking, their loyalty, and their strategy. 
our coaches here at this church, Christ Covenant Church, our coaches are pastors. Two-pronged gospel strategy that we as a team need to be committed to. Two things. Number one, covenant life groups that are going to be starting in May. The second, the book. Pastor needs teammates, not fans. He needs teammates to thoughtfully read and provide feedback to make sure the book is the best it can be for our king. Yeah, even in this, the team working together is how we get the win, guys. I sent that out weeks ago with the thought, how many people will actually take the time to read? Now, it's went through several revisions because of those of you who have given me uh, great feedback. But how many people actually took the time? Do you understand what this is? What we're attempting to do through this? If the book wins, we all win. The team wins. I want to bring up what Luke uh, did just last week, Luke uh, Kenning's suggestion. Uh, for those of you who read it, to those of you who have not taken the time to read it, this won't make any sense to you, but as biblical support for my argument from grammar in respect to the Adamic, Noahic, and Abrahamic covenants as marriage covenants, uh, Luke brought up the suggestion of adding Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, where we see Jesus using grammar uh, to make his case as it relates to the resurrection. He there, and we've talked about this before, he says, uh, I am, or he quotes from Exodus, where God says, I think it's Exodus 3 or 6, where God says to uh, Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rather than I was. And so by using the present tense versus the past tense, even though he's speaking post-mortem, the, the, these men are already dead, uh, he, he shows that those men are still alive somewhere. And Jesus uses, again, as I said, he's using the grammar to support his case. And uh, I think that that, uh, that contribution, what it is that Luke told me that I wasn't even thinking of at the time, which has now been added to the chapter, uh, I think that makes, could make the difference between somebody being convinced or dismissing what has been said. Your contributions are valuable to me, to us, to the team. I'm working for the team. Bill Bales, just weeks ago, uh, there was a section there where I had put the word uh, predecessors and it should have been successors uh, in relation to the covenants and the way that I was uh, uh, comparing them in this particular context. And, 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 and again, I used the wrong term there. Bill caught that and made mention of that. Had he not read that, I would have, I, I'd been going through it over and over and never saw that. You matter. And this, again, is our two-pronged approach. This is how we get the win. Here's the question, guys. What is your commitment to seeing our team's two-pronged strategy successfully executed, whether it be with the community groups or the book? What is your commitment? How committed are you to the team? It's not being the team to just show up on Sundays, right? Quote here from an anonymous source says this. Think about this. The team with the best players committed only to themselves is no match for the team with average players fully committed to their team. Say it again. The team with the best players committed only to themselves is no match for the team with average players fully committed to their team. I believe we have more than average players in this church. Problem is, not many of our players are in the game. And by the way, you don't need many. It doesn't take a big team to change the world. Twelve men change the world. 
thousands of years ago. Number three, we put the needs of the team above our individual needs. That's also what it means to function as a team. Going back to uh, our text in Philippians, we put the needs of the team above our individual needs. This is what uh, Paul speaks to next. We put the needs of the team above our individual needs. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. I think the better translation uh, there or uh, what might help you to understand these two verses, and I'm speaking to where it says in verse 3, uh, others, uh, they're others, where he says, uh, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and then that, uh, that uh, uh, others, the interests of others in verse 4, uh, to replace that uh, in both cases uh, with the phrase, the whole, the whole. So it reads like this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count the whole more significant than yourselves. To me, that may, to, to me, rather, that makes that text pop, because that's what Paul's saying here. You need to see the whole, the team, the group, the church, more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of the whole. How does what I do affect the whole? In relation to that, Jesus says in John 15, verse 12, in relation to loving one another, that no man has no, has no greater love than this, than he would lay down his life for the other. And in Luke chapter 22, interesting words by Jesus, which again uh, just reinforces this truth that Jesus indeed uh, saw his team as valuable to the success of his mission, his earthly mission. Says this, verse 28 of Luke 22, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and because of that, notice, you are those who stayed with me in my trials. You were the team, man. You were with me. You didn't leave me. You weren't the spectators. You weren't just on the side rooting me on. You were with me. You stayed with me. And because of that, I assigned to you as my Father has assigned to me a kingdom. that You may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know what Jesus is telling us there? It's there in your notes. Those who put the team first, even when things are tough, are those who go to heaven. Let me just say that again. Those who put the team first, even when things are tough, are those who go to heaven. Jesus says, because you put me first, because you put the team first, you were with me, we were in it together, I assign to you a kingdom. You'll eat and drink with me in my kingdom, in heaven. The late and great Bo Schembechler Coach Bo Schembechler said this, no man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team, the team, the team. Number four, what does it mean to function as a team? Number four, we are willing to play whatever role is necessary and sacrifice whatever is necessary. We are willing to play whatever role is necessary and sacrifice whatever is necessary to guarantee the team's success on the field. And again, we're going right back to our text in uh, Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Continuing on in those verses, we've covered verses 1 through 4. Look at 5 through 8. Paul now turns to the example of Jesus himself, King Jesus himself. 
He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in King Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is he telling us? He's telling us that Jesus sacrificed his high position of God. He did not consider that a thing to be grasped, a position to be grasped. He sacrificed his high position of God to fill the necessary role of an obedient human slave to guarantee his team's success. Is that not what he's saying? He took that position so that he could gain the victory for his team, for his church. Going back to what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, right? He purchased that team with his blood. He made them a winning team by his blood. He gave them the potential to win on the playing field because of his blood. Because of the weapons and the authority that he now possessed. Jesus sacrificed his high position to fill the very low position of becoming a human. To guarantee his team's success. And Paul says that that is the example, that's the mindset that we are to follow, that we are to possess. Have this mind, again, among yourselves. This is what it means to be a team player. This is what it means to function as the team. Because Jesus had this mindset, God upgraded his position on the team. Because Jesus had this mindset, God upgraded his position on the team. What am I talking about? Well, that's those remaining verses 9 through 11. Therefore, because of that, because Jesus was willing to come down and do whatever was necessary to guarantee the team's success, which, mean, which meant playing whatever role, didn't matter, no matter how low it was, he was willing to do it. Because of that, God upgraded his position. Hence the reason we have in verse 9, therefore... Because of that, God has highly exalted, upgraded him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus, the King, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hear this just alluding uh, back to what we read earlier from Matthew 28 and what I told you there about that where Jesus says all authority has been given to me. Why has all authority been given to me? Because I proved to be the best teammate, the best team player. Because I was willing to sacrifice it all for the team. I wear the C on my chest. I'm the captain of the team. You see? That's how you get the C on your chest. You've seen it in uh, football. The guy comes up and he's got the C. Those guys get voted into those positions because those are the guys that are willing to do whatever it takes to see, to guarantee that their teams are successful. And that's our king. That's why he's not just king of the Jews. He's king of kings. And every knee will bow to him. You know why? Because he was the best team player and he gave that to us as our example. Jesus became the goat king. And by goat, I don't mean literal goats. I mean greatest of all time king. Because of his willingness and sacrifice. Because he proved to be the ultimate team player. All authority has been given to me. Why? Because I sacrificed it all. For the team. For the team. Everybody wants to be the team's superstar. Right? 
the, 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 the posters, a kid's poster in their room, they don't look for the mediocre player, they look for the superstar. Right? They don't even make posters of the mediocre guys. Everybody wants to be the team's superstar. However, the only way to be the superstar is to be the best, most dedicated team player. The one who makes everyone else on the team look good, not themselves. Matthew chapter 10, verses 43 and 44, we've talked about them uh, several times already this month. Jesus says, you want to be the greatest? You be the best teammate You be the servant, you be the slave of all. That's how you become great. Even our world, beloved, understands this. Even our world gets this. Very few ministries, and I'm just being transparent now like I've been already today, very few ministries can be given to others in this church because very few of our members want to do what it takes to be superstars for our king. I want that to change, and I hope you want that to change too. And maybe a part of that is my fault because I've given the impression that I'm just going to be the one or just a few of us are going to be the ones that are doing all of the heavy lifting and you're just supposed to sit there. And I'm sorry if I've given you that impression. But I need a team. Jesus needs a team. We need to be that team. He's purchased us at a high price to be that team. And he's guaranteed we can win. The only person that can cause us to lose is ourselves. We need to be that team. Very few people are willing to sacrifice to make sure the ministry they are part of is a success. This is why we can't give things over. Pastor Tim and I have talked about this multiple times. We just talked about it this week. We want to give things to other people, but the problem is, is those people always have excuses. And we'll talk more about that here in just a little bit as it relates to fighting for the king, but there's always an excuse as to why it ends up being mediocre. And fizzling out. They're not committed to success. And that doesn't, by the way, require you be a leader. Sometimes people say, well, you didn't make me a leader. A great teammate or a a great team player, that's all you need to be. You don't need to be a leader. You first need to be a great teammate or team player. This, by the way, is how leaders are recognized, as I already talked about, right? You don't need to be the leader. You don't need to be the designated leader uh, to guarantee the team's success. That's how you become the leader. The, leader are the, the leaders are the superstar teammates, the team players, people the rest of us can count on to make sure whatever ministry they're a part of will be a success. People who are not fighting for themselves, their glory. But the glory of their king. If you're all concerned about being a leader... You're probably concerned about your glory and how people view you. That's the last person we want to be a leader. We want the people that are concerned about the success of the team. The success of the team. That the team looks good. That our king looks good. And that brings us then to the second point. We know what it means now, hopefully, to function as a team. What does it mean to fight for the king Well, it starts with this. We stop making excuses or settling for mediocrity. We stop making excuses or settling for mediocrity. When things fizzle out or they fail and I come to you or Tim comes to you and we say, what what happened? And you say, well, and you you start that or uh, because of it. What are you doing? Excuses, right? 
When I hear that, I say, oh, you, you, you're good with mediocrity. Anytime Christians make excuses for failure or serve up mediocrity in their service to the king, anything related to the church or ministry, they are not fighting for the king. Why? Because excellence is the only standard acceptable to our king. And I believe that you believe that. But do you give that? Excellence is the only standard. Hence why Paul prays this way for the Philippians. Philippians chapter uh, 1 verses 9 through 10. And it is my prayer that your love, your loyalty abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you will approve what is excellent. Not mediocre. I want your love to grow, your loyalty to grow so that you will understand how important excellence is. That's what he's saying. Excellence matters, guys, but get this. Excellence is never an accident. And some of you, this is how you run things. Oh, we'll just show up and kind of see how it goes. Because that's what I do all week, right? I, I just kind of take naps all week or whatever, and then I just kind of, you know, this kind of stuff, just, just it's by osmosis. It just floats onto the page for me, and then we're just here and kind of just happens, right? Excellence is never an accident. It takes perseverance, not quitting after two weeks. Some of you, you can't make it more in two weeks, maybe three. You get into the groove of something and then you... you, you and I'm just being honest here. Two weeks. You know what the two weeks are, by the way? The two weeks is the, 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 the time it takes for the, for the vapor trail to go away of the emotions of guilt you feel because of the sermon I preach like the sermon I preach today. Send your committee. Oh, man, pastor got me today. Uh, two weeks you come in. And after that, the vapor trail's gone. The feelings are gone. And then you, you drop off into mediocrity again. It takes perseverance, meticulous planning or preparation. Meticulous planning or preparation. Attention to detail. And sweating the small stuff. Small stuff. If you suffer at being excellent, if you suffer at being excellent, start by asking how much of the activities in your life are planned. This is a good place to just start. It's not, of course, dealing with all the things that I just mentioned here, but one, planning. Ask yourself this question right now. Just ask yourself this question. How many of the activities in your life are planned? Most people, and when I say most, I'm not talking about just in this church. I'm talking about in, in, in society as a whole. Most people plan only one thing, and that is to get to their job. This is people that are not on the street. They, they, that's the only thing they have planned in their life. And everything after that, and for us we would say, well, we plan to get to church and we plan to get our, to our job. Everything after that is gas out and pass out. You know what I mean when I say that? You come home and nothing's planned. And so whatever happens after that is purely reactionary. Whether it be your meals how much time you, you spend watching the boob tube, whatever it is, all you do is just gas out the rest of the night and then you pass out. And you wake up and you do it all over again. And from your standpoint, you're, you say to yourself, I don't have any time to do anything else. Anybody else who does more than what I do must be superhuman. No. They just know how to plan. And when I say they know how to plan meticulous planning, everything is planned, meaning how long I need to gas out to relax, that's planned. 
Everything that I do in my life is planned so that I don't waste my time, so that I don't waste my energy, so that I have time and energy for my king. And so again, if you struggle with being excellence, this is the place to start. How much of the activities in your life are planned? If you don't change in this area, and you don't start fighting for Jesus, for our King, I'm afraid the story of your life and what they will write on your tombstone will be something to this effect. They played a mediocre game filled with excuses and failure that accomplished little for the team or their king. There were water boys better than them. If you died today and you did have a tombstone, what would they say? Here's what I hope they would say. They fought the good fight for their king. For them, this was the life. Serve the king. Savor his kingdom. Closing contemplation or challenge for you then. My team, who I am committed to and I love, Closing contemplation or challenge. How successful will our covenant life groups be? The answer is up to you. How many of you are going to guarantee that they're a success right now? How many of you are going to do whatever it takes to see that those things are what they need to be? How successful will the book be? I need people to help me. I'll probably send an email out this week just detailing what exactly that uh, entails so it's a little more formal than just me sending something out. That too is going to be determined by all of us. By the commitment we're willing to make and those who feel that they can contribute to that, I need your help. What part, and here's really the bigger question, will you play to guarantee that they are successful, the strategies of your team? What part will you play? Remember again, all it takes is an average team committed to the team. And we can beat anybody. We can do great things for our king. What about the kind of teammate you are today? What are you today? Based on what we've talked about, what kind of a teammate are you? Final question then, what needs to change so you can be the superstar? Your king who paid a very, very, very high price for you. You can be the superstar your king deserves. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the time that we've had to talk about these difficult things, but I pray that that the difficulty would drive us not away from these challenges, but in the direction of them. That's what people who who win do. They run toward their problems, not away from them. And I pray that this would be the kind of challenge that would change this team, that we would be profitable for you, that we would be excellent for our king in the days to come. And again, that is not an accident. So if we're not planning those strategies, those things that that we want to do, they will fail. They will most certainly fail. Unless we plan, unless we give ourselves to it, unless we function as a team and fight for our king. Make it So we pray in his most precious name. Amen.